Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's lots of movies coming out, and it, it kind of feels like, I wouldn't say like things are back to normal per se, but the industry is like really pushing for some semblance of normalcy in a way that if you went back two years ago, it would have been hard to predict, don't you think? I mean, it's just like if you had a crystal ball at that time. I'm on the train with no mask, you know? It's, it's normal now. And we're just like swimming in new movies. I mean, not only here at Tribeca, and we can certainly talk about Tribeca movies that we've seen, but in you know the release calendar this summer is just dense. We'll get so. to that. What was your favorite Tribeca movie that you saw here this time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, this festival is really good for discoveries. I'm not necessarily tracking you know the potential kind of more commercial possibilities, but I really like this movie called Mountains. That's uh, in the narrative competition here. First time filmmaker from Miami about an immigrant story. Very sensitive, kind of new realist in a way. Uh, no stars, but a real kind of like breakout potential. And it's the kind of thing I could see winning that section. I mean, it's, it really is the kind of like out of nowhere, sort of where did this filmmaker come from experience. So that, that's my. That's what you need in this world. If you're going to get distribution, you have to win things. You know? Exactly. It's, yeah. a, it's a tough time. Um, I saw something that is more established, Christian Petzl's A Fire, which is just a fabulous, very timely, uh, almost romance, but not quite uh, drama. And, and I can't really tell you too much about it, except that it's uh, focused on a very narcissistic writer who doesn't see what's going on around him uh, until, in a way, it's too late. Is it a spoiler to point out that there's a forest fire component to it that is not at all <laughs> somewhat purely relevant scene. here? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that that's an interesting connection there. But we also we've been running around New York seeing stuff, and on Monday we took a little break from Tribeca and we saw The Flash together, which was a fun outing in a way because... Uh, well, it was one of those things where the studios packed the house with a bunch of uh, fans. And so I had, I had like a woman screaming in my ear every time a Batman showed up. And by the way, a lot of Batman show up. Not really a spoiler, just so you know, because it's a question of which one. As much they know. <laughs> Yeah, but that was a that was a really interesting experience because we've been hearing about the Flash and on this podcast we've been talking about kind of the buzz around the Flash for so long. Obviously, there were the delays, there was the whole complication with Ezra Miller, but then there was also CinemaCon, which you're very well versed in, had a screening of the movie and the hype was really really strong. They really were going for this is the best DC movie ever or the best um, you know you know either the best comic book movie ever. It isn't. Okay, I'm sure you've already read some of the reviews, which have been slightly muted from that kind of excessive hyperbole, but it's going to do really well. Uh, you know, whatever is wrong with it, it's going to be a big hit. I don't, you're not so sure. I'm not, I mean, the tracking as we're talking right now is within the $70 million range, and usually these things, when they do well, open closer to 100. Now, 
a lot of movies at Tribeca would love to be tracking the seventy million dollar range for opening weekend. Well, Spider Verse was tracking much lower than it actually opened and is doing really well. This isn't in that realm where the reviews are raves and it's one of the best things playing uh, all year. But this, I think, this one satisfies a certain audience. Well, I mean, I have a hot take on the Spider Verse thing, which is like I don't even really think of it as a superhero movie. I mean, there's some. I mean, yes, Spider Man is the Trojan horse, so you could talk about something familiar. It helps. Familiar. That it it's helps. a superhero movie. It helps. But the, when you watch it, it's, it just doesn't feel like it has the same tropes. I mean, The Flash is sort of the ultimate superhero movie in our superhero times. Like, so they take advantage of the multiverse and add, you know, just here's another Superman. Here's another hero. You know, we're going to reiterate this over and over and over. And it gets repetitive. It becomes boring. Yeah, and I, and I kind of am starting to feel multiverse fatigue in general. It's like it, it's been done. It's it's been done. So so the the Ezra Miller thing is interesting because of course we followed all the the scandals and the mental illness. Yeah, I mean we're in an interesting cultural moment right now where different kinds of commercial gambles on different scales are running into that wall where it's like, well, this person's been deemed problematic or they've done something that could be a, a challenge, but. The chief concern here is the bottom line. So how do we work around that? What you have here is a case where the studio has pulled out every stop in its arsenal to figure out how to save a 200 plus million dollar investment plus marketing worldwide. They're, they weren't going to throw Ezra Miller under the bus. They couldn't afford to do it. Is it right or wrong? I'm not saying, but it, it, they couldn't afford to do it. Well, it's interesting because this past week, you know, we saw the... Uh, the shooting schedule for the Marvel movie with Jonathan Majors, the next one that he's supposed to do has been pushed. And we don't know how that situation is going to entirely it's play gonna out. It's going to be very but. similar. They're not going to use him for PR. They're not going to put him in front of the press. So the um, new MO is just hide them. They didn't put Ezra Miller in front of the press, and you know, we'll see We'll see how it does. The other thing that, that is, is interesting about, you know, here we are at a film festival and we're talking about this giant blockbuster that's coming out, is that there is this perception that things are getting squeezed out. Um, I guess we can sort of preview. We have a guest next week on our podcast who's the uh, head of Sony. Yeah, the studio head, Tom Rothman. Tom Rothman. Sony. And, you know, even he, who is very much this sort of, you know, theatrical evangelist, uh, acknowledged that kind of the old model for, for getting art house movies is broken, the platform release, where you get a movie out in, say, New York, he's, L.A., and gradually roll it out. He's talking about the long rollout, the rollout that goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and he's just saying it's a shorter window now before you move on to the other things in that universe. Yeah, but it does lead to these really tough existential questions where it's like, if The Flash is tracking kind of soft and, and other movies that are opening, which we could talk about, are tracking, you know, it's, it's really hard to get these big behemoths seen. Where does that leave the stuff that doesn't have some sort of innate appeal to it? I mean, it's, it's just not a well, given anymore. Wh what everybody uh, says, and I, I believe that it's true, is we got Bleecker Street here. We got other distributors around the festival. What happens is that they recognize that they're using it for marketing, that they're getting a bump, that they're building interest in the following ancillary markets to come. And, you know, one guy said to me uh, from Magnolia, he said, I used to have 10 outlet, you know, on my spreadsheet that has all the numbers on it of how much my movies are making, there were 10 things, now there are 35 things. And, and that's how it, it is now. They're not expecting, the, they have lower expectations of what theatrical will be. 
Well, yeah, it's fascinating because we also went to a party for Asteroid City this week. And if you just based all the buzz on Asteroid City based on like the vibe in that room, that movie was like a guaranteed blockbuster hit. It could do really well, but the, we tend to lose track in our little bubble of being industry people who also love good movies on how the rest of this country in particular pays attention to stuff. I mean, is Asteroid City really permeating the culture? Is it a movie that people are excited to go see with their family over the weekend? Probably not. It's a movie for Wes Anderson fans. Right. So how many are there? I mean, come on. It's I mean, much. are the TikTok, the TikTok uh, AIs sort of absorbing some of that? I mean, are we going to... I worry about like an, a generation of people who think like the AI TikTok trailers invented Wes Anderson and he ripped them off or something like that. So... <laughs> You know, it's it's a very strange, unpredictable moment. But I also I mentioned the 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 families going to the movies question because Pixar has a new movie opening as well, uh, which is also not tracking particularly well, unfortunately. And I'm all about rooting for Pixar to succeed as this sort of, you know, hub for originality within the kind of Disney universe and the legacy that is associated with that. But Elemental is an odd movie, and it was a centerpiece here, so it was interesting to see it in a festival context. Too. Elemental is, is, is a good movie. It just doesn't reach the, the high, high, high levels and standards that Pixar has set for itself. And we have to give them credit in the John Lasseter years, really, for uh, an extraordinary run of uh, A-plus movies that were reviewed at the top level that did as much business as those movies could do. And in the past few years, that has not been true. But Disney, uh, and Bob Chapek in particular, didn't do them any favors during the pandemic when he put them on uh, Disney Plus and gave audiences an expectation that that's where they were gonna find those films, that they could afford to wait for them. And I think he really did some damage. Yeah, it's fascinating because I, I seem to recall you cornered him as an event and said, when are you going to start putting these movies in theaters again? And at some point in the earlier COVID days, and he said, when people start going to theaters again, which sounds like a real chicken and the egg kind of a thing in a way, because, of course, Tom Cruise, among others, uh, maybe, you know, the Spider-Man movie that, that came out in late 2021. He's promoting too. The Flash now. But a lot of big movies showed that if you have a reason, you have to give people something of quality, and they will take that. And it, COVID made it tough. But, but basically training people to expect these things to arrive at home just makes it less of an event to go see them. I covered enough of the old Pixar movies to know that what they would do is in the, um, you, we might want to call it a writer's room, but it was a brain trust. Uh, these had, they would have these extraordinary meetings with what they had animated so far, sort of storyboards, you know, in rough form. And they would, ha they would tear it apart. They would be ruthless, and they would do things over and over and reiterate. And I'm just wondering, this is my question, if the same level of ruthlessness is going on in those meetings right now. It's and a good question. If, unfortunately, if Pixar doesn't continue, if, if, if Elemental really doesn't do well and Pixar continues to not thrive, I worry about their management. Well, I mean, this is a challenge now for Bob Iger to figure out, but I mean, I've, I've been to the Pixar campus relatively recently and you still feel like you're in this self-contained It's a lovely universe. place. It really, I mean, it feels like you're on a college campus and people are given the space to, to think these things through. I worry more about just the the demands of, of 
what's now a content content factory more than like a creative factory in the sense that everything's being thought of in terms of how it's going to get out in the world. Is this a TV series? And they have TV stuff they're working on now. And what, what, how can we date it in a way so that we can also plot out the sequel and all these other things? And that's not really how art thrives. It certainly is not how the old studio system worked and you know, this like cranking things out kind of a way. And, and they're, they're susceptible to that as well. Um, one other area we should talk about because it's relevant to Tribeca and to the market is documentaries. Because um, you actually wrote a bit about this week, the, the documentary race for the Oscars um, is still wide open. And usually by this time of year, because of Sundance, you would know some like key docs that would be out there. And yeah, I, right now. a lot of people have been talking about it. And so I sort of looked into it. I dug into it and called a bunch of people. and. Basically, Sundance usually gives you maybe almost four out of the five final Oscar nominees. It's, it's, it, they get to cherry pick. They pick the best of the best of the best. It's so hard to get in there. And this year, it didn't feel the same way. It didn't feel like the same level of quality was in the, in the selection. And it didn't feel like a lot of movies popped. And some of the movies that did win prizes didn't have distribution. And if you're not distributed, you can't have an Oscar campaign. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So some of those movies are getting picked up slowly, and I think they're going to break late. And I think some of them will turn up again in the fall at the fall festivals and pick up some steam there. And some of them are going to come from overseas. And it's going to be much more international. But I do think that it's it's kind of ironic how we had this like explosion of like the doc market in the last few years, and the streamers are still in that space in a certain kind of way. But they're not but making, they're making Oscar their docs. own, and they're uh, they're doing commercial stuff. Yeah, and they're doing series, and they're they're also uh, uh, not going to festivals and picking up difficult. Uh, that's what, I mean, the stuff that wins Oscars, you know, Navalny or, or uh, you know, uh, something like Laura Poitras's uh, Citizen Four, these are difficult movies. These are challenging movies. They're risks. They ask a lot of questions. Stakes. Yeah. And figuring out how to make that kind of stuff in today's landscape. It's They're hard not, enough. quote unquote, commercial. So you have to go global. And it is possible we'll just see a bunch of international docs kind of coming into that conversation. Of course, that's what's happening with Oscar season in general. Is that it's well, they've more global, added a lot so. of international voters and uh, to the uh, documentary branch, and, and that's going to make a difference. So we should open it up to questions for the audience. And if you have questions, you could stick your hand up and we'll have a mic. But on the subject of Oscars, how do you see where things are at right now? Because we're at an interesting midpoint at recording in June. I would love to get an Ann Thompson on the record prediction for Best Picture. No way. <laughs> I was trying to blindside her. No, 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 no. Anyone who knows me knows that I only predict things I've already seen. Right, so you've seen a I bunch. will say that Past Lives is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and that will be a factor in uh, the race. I can say confidently that Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon will be nominated for a bunch of Oscars and whether it wins or not I can't say but um, there's a lot there's there's a lot to look forward to I, yeah I mean know, whatever it is that breaks in Venice Telluride Toronto, Maestro something these, like that New York these are the, sto the stories to come yeah yeah I mean and, and we'll see with something like Asteroid City I mean it's not a best picture winner per se but it could be an awards player it could be a crafts it player well. it could be a production design yeah. Adam Stockhausen yeah strikes again no it's gorgeous asteroid city we're all rooting for it we are rooting for it to do well this weekend yeah and then there's and it uh, was fun to go to the party at sardis it was, and, it was you know old school. rub shoulders with uh, bill murray and brian cranston and, and ethan hawk and all the gang you know yeah bill murray talk about uh 
marketing challenges. He's not in this movie though, so they don't have to worry about that. He was that replaced one. by yes, Steve by Steve Carell because of COVID, apparently. Yeah. So questions? let's open it up to questions from the audience. If you have one, uh, just stick your hand in the air, and we'll get a mic over to you. We'll start with the gentleman in the red shirt, and then behind him. You've seen like recent stuff on Disney Plus or Max being removed, and now Netflix is removing Lingua Franca from Isabel Sandoval. What do you think about the future of films availability on streaming platforms? That's a really good question about just how much They're stuff is being pulled. changing their economic yeah. model. It costs money to put so much content up on those servers. It isn't free. And so they're, they're all, everybody's, it's interesting. A lot of the studios are definitely figuring out that they're going to be in business. This is what Tony, this is what Tom Rothman was talking about. Um, yeah, they're going to be in business with the different streamers. They're going to collaborate. They're going to partner with them. Um, Netflix is still king of the heap. I don't see anything threatening them, really. Um, they're actually doing well with the, with the password sharing. I coughed up extra bucks for my daughter to be, to be on there. Um, you know, so it's, it's I don't see uh, Netflix being challenged. I see a lot of competition, um, and uh, they're not going to be uh, religiously keeping everything on, on those sites. They're yeah. going to sell them off. They're going to license them to other places yeah, but it, it for also, money. It, it does hit on this really fascinating question. It's like a few years ago, you could have this sense of permanence once you got distribution, and your movie gets out in the world, and it's like people could buy the nice DVD. Maybe if it's really good, somebody like Criterion does something cool with it, or you know, Oscilloscope had a really interesting DVD service, Kino Lorber. But now it's like you kind of exist in this ether where you travel, and it's it's never quite clear where your stuff might live. And there's a risk live. that you can actually disappear. From the point of view of the filmmaker, that's a terrifying thing. And it does right. support the idea of going back to some old Windows model where you could actually be uh, showing up in other places for real. Yeah. So I do think that maybe there's a business opportunity somewhere in there to figure this out for people, but it is a real crapshoot in terms of figuring out you know, where things can live long term. There was a question back here. Just make sure we get in the mic. Thank you very much. Um, my question is this. For a small film without the star power, without the big distribution, or even a small distribution for that matter, somebody with a very limited budget, very little P&A, um, who you know, did the circuit, won a bunch of awards, didn't really get into Tribeca or Khan or any of the big festivals. What do you think is the secret sauce to a film like that succeeding, um, given that it was shot for very little money and it's not gonna take a whole lot to recoup it, but still, uh, the person who made that movie wants it to be seen, and I'm just curious to get your point of view. That's the kind of thing where the small movie actually has a better chance in a weird way of getting its money back. And, and there are smaller regional festivals. You don't have to go to the major ones. You just have to get some reviews. You have to get some attention. And if you want, you can do the, the DIY um, theater by theater kind of booking. Yeah. It, it so does happen. Our consulting fee is $10,000. Um, <laughs> but actually, if you were to look at the costs for these things, the truth is a lot of people burn money asking that question to all kinds of folks. And, and it is important, first of all, to be really careful because this industry is swimming with sharks who wanted to say, I've got the answer for you. Having said that, what I've found talking to a lot of people is that Surrounding yourself with smart people who really like what you've made can be super valuable, and sometimes they'll even cut you a break and from, from a cost standpoint if they see long-term possibilities. So if it's a doc, you should be talking to Josh Braun at Submarine or the Synetic or these companies that you've probably read about in IndieWire or elsewhere that work on movies that succeed, and 
they may prefer to be at a big festival, but if they see some market potential, they're going to get it out to different kinds of folks. You know, you look at like the case study of Skinamarink last year that Shudder put out, really fascinating story of a, of a no budget horror movie that had like a YouTube life and stuff. And they figured out a way to turn that into a kind of a hit without a major festival launch. There's case studies like that all over the place. So you got to do the research and then you got to find these people who are not movie stars. You could find their emails online and take meetings with them and, and they'll give you the direction that you need at least to start brainstorming. I think I see a familiar face. That's uh, This is Vincent. He runs our TikTok, Instagram and stuff like that. I do so. it all. I do it all. Yeah. King social of social guy. media. I do it all. Um, so we were kind of talking about this the other night. Obviously, you guys are keeping up with the idol. You both have seen it. You know the discourse around it. But we were mentioning that like friends of mine were now kind of going back on Euphoria, being like, okay, like was Euphoria even a good show? And now we have everything going on with the idol. Do you think that Sam Levinson can kind of like bounce back from this? I don't think that can was the right move for the idol. That is number one. And it's an interesting thing because there was so much negative publicity around the turbulence of the production, the fact that they replaced Amy Simons, that, that Sam Levinson had to come in and finish it because The weekend wanted to, to have a different profile in, in the end. I'm not sure he came out ahead on that. I'm not sure uh, that anybody did because ultimately all that bad publicity put a sour taste in people's mouths. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, well, first of all, Sam Levinson's going to be fine. You know, he comes from a family that is very successful and he lives a pretty He's a talented guy. And I think there's a lot of people who would probably want to bring him in to consult on... I mean, he's not going to be, like, exiled because he had a show that got a very divided response. We haven't seen the whole thing yet, so I'm sort of curious to see what it's long... It's five episodes, and even though, you know, there's the linear TV question, it's not really about... How many people watch it live? It's more like, do people get through those five episodes and what's the overall reaction to this thing? And one thing you, I would say about that show is you could pick it apart and get offended by all this kind of stuff, but it stirs up conversation. It's got a lot of energy and creativity and you could see that talent in there. And I do think he's talented and I do think that he has a talented team and, and it's a very well cast show. So I, I don't really believe in this idea that you make something bad and then suddenly like it's just really hard to crawl back from that maybe he used to be he's in a talented like director guy. jail he but... still gets credit for euphoria being one of the huge huge hits on hbo it's not going to go backwards but what you're talking about is more audience uh kind of feedback yeah i mean the people who does pay he bounce for these shows are going to count on him to create another one that gets everyone to watch again right and the internet loves to beat up on the guy, but he does seem to kind of make hits by and large. I mean, you, you don't hit it, have to hit it out of the park all the time to be somebody who's still like largely associated with I liked Malcolm and Marie. What's wrong with me? There you go. Other uh, questions from the, from the audience? How do you guys anticipate the outcomes of the writer's strike will affect what gets made down the line? I'm so glad you asked that because we've been talking about it week after week to the point where it almost, it's like, I wouldn't say we forget about it, but it's just, it's like always well, we're there. Taking, we're almost, it's, it's part of our lives now. It's part of the fabric of, of our lives. There's going to be huge demand for product. Um, we don't know how long that the, the writer's strike is going to go on. We don't know if the actors are going to join them. It's a possibility, a real possibility. We don't know um, how much longer this could go. And, and, and people are going to be out of work and it's going to be painful. It's not a pretty picture. 
Yeah, I mean, the DGA uh, agreement is going to be ratified soon, and the WGA folks are really ticked about it, and the, the actors have voted, I think it's 97 point something percent in agreement to, for, for a strike authorization. So it seems pretty likely that the actors will strike, and what I keep thinking about is what happens when the general public really realizes this is going on? Because right now, it's not affecting things, but if you suddenly have this crazy gap in... in good movies or TV shows you like, Stranger Things is not going to shoot while the strike is going on. It isn't going to be impact. felt by the public for months. It'll be in the fall sometime that people might start to notice that some of the shows they want to watch aren't there. And, and whatever happens, if and when there is some agreement and this isn't just like a forever strike, um, it will change to some degree the economics of Hollywood. I mean, I, I don't see the writers completely giving up on all of their demands. So that's, that's probably gonna be the biggest shift in a way. Uh, this question is kind of related to the previous two ones. How do we know if anything's a, an actual success in the streaming era if none of the streamers will actually release data on uh, any of these projects, which is one of the things that the writers are fighting for and with the idol, I mean, HBO, even if the audiences don't actually watch it, HBO could just make up a statistic and say, see, it's a success. Well, HBO, remember, is based on a subscription model, the actual HBO, not, not Max, but it, it, Max is too. They're all based on a subscription model. The idea is here, uh, I got distracted by, you, you go, you go, because I, I... Well, no, I mean, I, 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 think, I think you're right that the, part of it is a, the subscription model has changed the business to a large degree in that it's, the metrics for success are so different and they're not really focused on what benefits an individual creator. So you, you talk to people in this business who have been like living on residuals of things for years, decades sometimes, because they made like one good movie or worked on this TV show in the 90s or whatever. And like that doesn't, that model isn't supported by the way that streaming operates now. So it has to be replaced by something else. And the way the streamers have replaced it is basically by saying, we'll, we'll pay you what we think those residuals will be upfront. And if the show is an even bigger hit, then you're kind of screwed. But if the show is just does okay, then maybe you made out okay. So there, it's, it's just kind of rewired the way that people make money in this business. And it does raise these questions of does success really matter in an immediate kind of way anymore? There are a lot of downsides to streaming. And, and one of them is this question of the, of the residuals being paid or anyone benefiting from success. The question of transparency as it applies to the Writers Guild strike is a fascinating one because if there is going to be some revised uh, kind of residual uh, formula, they would have to have some way of measuring success eyeballs and and they can't they, they they have all those stats it's not like they don't exist they don't share them and they don't want to share them and i don't think they ever will share them but what they could do is get an outside um uh data processing thing where they, they would have the numbers and it would go through them and that would be done in that way it would have to be a trusted entity of some kind yeah that's a good point i will say just to i guess to sort of wrap this up because it because it's a interesting point uh, that ties into some of the other questions here is that the way in which people work creatively has changed so much and I do as, as sort of an optimist see it as a huge opportunity for people who can make stuff small and cheap which is a lot of things you would see at a festival like this and other festivals right now at home I've been working through the new season I got screeners for it's always sunny in Philadelphia the new season it's really funny 
some crazy Danny DeVito stuff happens in it. But like those people who worked on that show, you know, Rob McElhenney and all them, they got so rich on it. And that's why they keep coming back and doing new seasons because it's easy and it costs nothing for them. They're just in a room just being crazy. And it does really well. And I feel like it's much it's much harder for shows like that to make people wealthy, but the actual process of making them is not that hard to do. So if you can make stuff that's small and good and fast and you can make a lot of stuff, you're really well set up for the future. So On Godspeed. That note, thank you everybody for thank coming. You for being it was here. great to see you it was here. A lot of fun. I love seeing faces. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.